Hi, I'm Adam Toon. Uh, I'm an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Exeter in England. Uh, okay, so that's perfect. You teach philosophy because I was curious, why do you teach philosophy? How did you get into the game of philosophy? Mm, uh, well, I um, uh, originally uh, studied maths and theoretical physics at university for a while. Um, that sounds lucrative. But, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, more than plot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. If I, do you know, there's a few times when I'm asked to give advice yeah. to students or, uh, about um, these career choices. And I, and I look back and think, actually, the, the naivety that I had back then um, was um, uh, probably a good thing. Because I think, um, like a lot of these big life decisions, if I'd really sat and weighed up the pros and cons of <laughs> Uh, of my choices I, I might not have uh, um, made the choice I did and you know I'm, I'm very lucky that it's it's worked out um, it's worked out fine in the end but uh, it's not not especially easy route and um, there are you know plenty of points in most people's career who do this sort of job where it, it looked like it might not work out and um, yeah yeah so um, so yeah I, I did uh, um, physics and um, uh, theoretical physics and maths and um uh, I, I think at a certain point, just um, uh, uh, I think a, a lot of the reason I was interested in physics was sort of you know big questions about life, the universe, and everything. And, and of course, um, the more you move along in the sciences, the more sort of specialised and um, um, they can become. And, and to some extent, you can sort of feel like you've lost sight of some of those big questions that you were um, you're interested in, or at least that that's how I began to feel. And so. Um, I was very lucky that I got the chance to study the history and philosophy of science, actually, rather than um, um, uh, sort of philosophy. Um, and, um, and and so I was able to do that for the final year of my degree and really enjoyed it and, and was lucky enough to, to, you know, get a scholarship to go to graduate school and, and carry on, um, carry on doing it. Yeah. Was there a particular... Um when, for instance, growing up, were you really, were you always thinking about you liked kind of the big, big questions, or is this something that developed later? That's a good, yeah, it's a good question. I don't, um, I mean, I think I just, uh, just love learning about things, really. I know that that sounds a little <laughs> bit um, bland, but I, you know, I, I uh, um, you know, I was really lucky that I had a, a lot of, um, great teachers at school and you know uh, certainly until you're 15 or 16 in the UK you can be doing lots of different things so you know I remember loving history and then heading straight down and we had a electronics club at school and I got to sort of build little robot circuits and so <laughs> on and the teachers were you know kind enough to put in time after school to let us do that and uh, I love writing stories and so on so I think it was more just the sort of breadth of of um, things that I enjoyed but then um, you know at the age of 16 you you pretty much have to decide within the UK system are you you know um, where are you specializing you've got to pick three or four things and and you know if, if you're looking ahead as I was and thinking well what you know what university place would I like to get um, uh, you know it, to do to do the sciences that that sort of narrowed down my options and then I, I couldn't really carry on doing humanity subjects as well you know so I ended up doing maths and further maths and uh, physics and chemistry and so on and um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I think looking back, it, my school didn't teach philosophy. It wasn't, I, I, I doubt I'd have known what um, philosophy was as a subject, really, as a, as a you know, even before university, really. Um, but um, I, do, I do remember we had classes which, I can't remember what they were called, if they were a sort of, they might have been called something a bit... Uh, elliptical like personal and social education or some something like that um, where we talk about you know democracy or sort of I suppose citizenship is what people sometimes might might call it and um, I certainly remember a few of those debates where I was sort of very bloody-minded in sticking to a particular principle and um, and you know defending it against the rest of the class and I look back now and I think that was probably a sign of things to come really <laughs> I was just sort of very very awkward kind of kid who would uh, you know lay down the law and uh, what I thought first off and then just defend it despite it being obviously um, you know <laughs> obviously far too rigid or what have you so so yeah yeah how did you transition so philosophy is one thing um so one of the things the reason your recent book jumped out at me is because uh i think this issue of what consciousness is what constitutes the mind how do we how do we figure out what it is the fact that we still can't do that in this incredibly technologically advanced sophisticated world especially in the first world we i feel like we still haven't locked down what exactly is consciousness what is the mind what are we talking about when we're thinking about our own identity as an ego being uh mm. why did the mind start to uh, start to attract you in college and then we'll start wandering into what the hell's going on in this field mm, okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um well, I didn't. So, so when I say when I started, um, when I moved away from doing, studying the sciences, yeah. uh, I originally studied um, what's called history and philosophy of science. And, and at the university where I was studying in Cambridge, there's a, a, a specialised department in history and philosophy of science, um, and there's a separate philosophy department. So, um, so, so a lot of what I, I worked on first of all was what would be called philosophy of science. So questions about. Um, the nature of scientific method, if, if indeed there is such a thing, um, key concepts in the science like causation or laws of nature and what, what, they, what they mean, um, uh, questions about um, what kind of attitude we should take to scientific theories. So should we believe in things we can't see, like atoms and genes, for instance, and if, if we should, why? Um, um, and so, um, so a lot of my... Um, my uh, early work in philosophy was was in philosophy of science, um, and it sounds like I'm curious. Tell me if I'm yeah. wrong. A lot of that sounds like how do why do we believe what we believe in science, and how do we know what we know in science? Yes, I think that's that's right, and it and it's um, so. I mean, my, my specific topic that I that I wrote my first book on was about scientific models. And one of the things that's so interesting about models in science is that they're false, and the scientists know perfectly well that they are false. Um, in, in other words, you know, the world is, to use William James's phrase, a, a blooming, buzzing confusion, um, and it's typically um, far too messy and complicated to, to describe as it is. And so we usually have to simplify and idealise it um, in various ways we use we use models um, and um, and so I was interested in that and comparing that in certain limited ways to um, the way that say paintings or fiction sort of simplify various things yeah. in order for us to to understand them 
Um, but I think I think more generally, you're, I'm, I think your characterization is just right. And I think the the answer to sort of how I got interested in the mind um, it, from that starting point of, in uh, in philosophy of science is that um, the the nature of the mind is not only important, I mean, it's not only an extremely interesting, important question in its own right, of course, but it also sits at the heart of the way we think about knowledge and our relationship to the world. And such a lot of the questions that exercise us in, for instance, the questions we ask about the sciences, um, have, a, have a very similar starting point. So, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, you, one key question in philosophy of science is um, what's often called scientific realism. So the question of, um, roughly speaking, whether we can take our scientific theories to be true or not. And part of that, Wait, of course, can I stop you the, for one second? Mm, yeah, carry I on. I have noticed yeah. uh, just like a minute ago, it sounded like a buzzing kicked on. Right. Yes, that is the plumbing in the Victorian building that I'm in. I'm sorry to say, uh, it's become increasingly loud in the last week or so. It's so weird. I would expect usually there's like gurgling or whatever, but this is it's just a hum, just a humming of the plumbing. It's it's a high pitched it, and it's a problem because it, it's the toilet near the seminar room uh, and underneath my office, and so people can be giving a talk, and all of a sudden, if someone flushes it, it, it makes this noise. So I will be on to the maintenance team about it okay. as soon as possible. And it, you're right, it does go away. So it really is whatever the whole process of flushing the water and everything coming back to equilibrium. Okay. It is. I'm in a, in a, a, a very idiosyncratic um, Gothic Victorian house here <laughs> that's been repurposed into a university research center. Okay, sorry, in scientific realism. Go, uh, so go ahead. Yes, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. so, um, uh, so I, I suppose, roughly speaking, the, the, the way that, you can uh, express the issue there is, of course, that lots of us in our um, particular society are very comfortable with the idea that the world is, as it were, radically different to the way it appears to us. You know, that we're, we're, we're comfortable with the thought that, well, the world as it appears to the senses, what, what Wilfred Sellers called the manifest image uh, of the world, um, is... Um, very different to the world as it really is, as presented with the sciences. So, you know, the, the classic example, you know, a, a table seems to me as if it's solid and it has um, a colour and a particular shape and so on. But but I know that in some sense, what it really is, is um, lots of uh, tiny things that perhaps are waves or perhaps are particles or perhaps are both um, uh, in mostly empty space and, and so on. So so there's a, a particular sort of um, divide between um, the world as it seems to us or, and, and the way that we take it to be uh, um, based on the, the results of the sciences. Um, and, you know, arguably that um, division is something that's that's um, um, the, in the form it, that it takes for us a, a feature of modern culture um, that's um, uh, that's quite distinctive and and what it seems to involve what it seems to be a question about of course is the relationship between mind and world um, so we we have I think one of the reasons I'm interested in the mind is we have a um, a quite a compelling picture of the mind which is roughly speaking that it is an inner world within us and 
the key question then is what is the relationship between that inner world and the world outside and a lot of the questions about knowledge more generally are questions about whether our inner world um, uh, is an accurate picture of the world outside whether there really is a world outside or if we all are brains in a vat and, and so on um, so um, so I suppose the, the answer to the question of why I got interested in the mind is um, not only that I think it's, as you, you mentioned, it's fascinating in its own right, but it also lies at the heart of the way we understand so many of the questions of modern philosophy. What so <clears throat> it's interesting that the separation from inner world and outer world, and I saw that in some of the the, the talk about uh, the recent book. Uh, just as you said earlier, uh, these kind of fictions that we know they're not real, but we use them like the table is solid. That is, you know, it's a useful tool or model for me to imagine that the table is solid, even though the scientists tell me there's more space than solid there. This idea that there is an inner world separate from the outer world. We feel that compellingly, but isn't that the inner world seems also like a complete, it's probably also, it's also an illusion. So what isn't it? We, because we can't pin our finger on where the consciousness is, where the mind is. And if we can't sort of hold it and look at it and say, this is real, it's just another fiction. How, how do we deal with, how do we deal with that? <laughs> well, uh, yeah. How, uh, how, how do we deal with it is a good, a, a good question. Uh, I mean, um, so I, I think that um, what I want to say is we, we need to be, um, sort of careful in how we, we phrase some of some of um, the questions that we ask about okay. about the mind. So so um, it, here's a here's a kind of uh, a very common view which I think um, uh, is a mistake. And then I'll get on to the, the question of how we sort of deal with <laughs> deal with it if it, is, it is if it is indeed a mistake. So so I think there's a um, the, the the starting point for the the book um, that I just wrote is. Um, what's often called folk psychology. So in other words, uh, all I really mean by that is it's our um, ordinary, day-to-day, um, -day common sense um, talk about the mind. Um, so, so the thought here is in everyday life, usually without even noticing what we're doing, um, we say that people have certain beliefs and certain desires and um, we use that to explain, you know, uh, why is that chap um, standing at the bar, raising his hand um, and sort of, you know, waving it over at the other person with their back to them. Well, because he wants a drink, um, you know, so he's got a desire, a desire for a, a pint of beer or whatever it is. Um, and he has various beliefs like that you can get a pint of beer in a pub and that um, the person standing behind the bar very often is able to help you with that and so on and so forth. So, so one way to, as it were, start to demystify some of these questions about the mind or at least make them more concrete is to reflect on the fact that in ordinary life typically there's a sense in which we're not especially confused about the mind or at least we're experts at saying um, what other people's beliefs and desires are often even when we don't know them, um, they're just a you know they're just a, a chap who's come in the bar where we work to to get a drink and we, we haven't met him before, um, and often on the basis of fairly limited clues. In this case, he's just standing there waving his hand, and that's it. You know, um, so I think one way in which we should try to, as I say, not um, 
not see the mind as something too, uh, as it were, otherworldly or, or strange. It's to just remind ourselves of the role that concepts like belief and desire and so on and emotions are play in everyday life, in which we're often experts at deploying them, or at least you know, we get it. We get it right a lot of the time. And wait, can I complicate um, one thing about because because mm-hmm, I I love sure. your example. Um, a lot of the things are judgments, are quote unquote judgments or stories we might tell about that man at the bar come out of we don't, we're not even quote unquote conscious of them. So this inner world, do you have to then parse this inner world into well the things I reason about and think about in the spotlight of my attention and the things that happen. Um, intuitively unconsciously to help me navigate around which are almost almost come out of the body more than they come out of the conscious mind yes i think i I think um that's right i mean i think that you know as you say i mean typically when we as philosophers put it when we attribute mental states or when we say what people want or or think what have you we don't have to go through a, a long process of thinking you know you, you wouldn't last very long working in a pub if you had to say okay there's someone standing over there they're waving their arm i wonder what <laughs> beliefs and desires that could toke and, right. and you know um you, and, and so I, I think the way that i would put it is it's a, a kind of um we're engaged in a, a a shared public practice um of uh of a certain language for talking about people, which includes talk about their mental states. And yes, very often, um, like with a lot of our language use, we, we um, you know, I, I blurt things out before thinking what I'm saying all the time. We, we you know, we, we, we take part in those practices very fluidly. And, um, and now sometimes, of course, it takes a lot more explicit reflection. And that's one of the things that people do in a therapy session or it's one of the things that they do chatting with their friends in the pub about why uh, you know another friend is behaving so strangely lately or, or um that we do sometimes have to reflect okay and i explicitly um yeah but but in many cases it's fluid and automatic okay that's perfect because i just wanted to set up oh are you setting up a, a, are there additional quadrants of things on which you are reflecting consciously and things that happen as a matter of whatever, we're, we're genetically programmed to be able to work with people socially this way, and we're not always aware of it. So you're like, oh, no, that can all be included. It's sort of these fluid boundaries. Yes. I mean, I'd, uh, we, we perhaps we'll, we'll get on to this. I'd, I, I would want, I think, to um, be a bit careful about moving from us being very automatic and very you know, habitual or inc- accustomed to doing this to, to attributing it to, um, say, genetic heritage. I think we, we you know, uh, and it, it, an alternative explanation is simply that we're in culture we're taken into a particular culture at an early age and taught its its language and its norms and um and humans are social creatures and we're able to adopt those norms and and conf- conform to them fairly smoothly um and a, a lot of social life is like that yeah. yeah um but but yes there is a there is the more general point i think is it's absolutely right that in a vast majority of cases we talk about other people's minds without even noting that's what we're doing Um, and we rely on assumptions about other people's minds and their beliefs and desires all the time you know um why why is that guy trying to push in in front of me oh because he really wants a drink too um (laughs) you know that that i don't have to go through much of a process of reasoning to see that's happening for me to want to elbow him out the way and get there before him or something like that um so 
you can tell I'm, I'm, I'm giving a, a very bad impression here of the English at 3 30. Yeah, in boy, the this, this to, bobbing to, to, and jostling and just jamming. It I sounds know, like a terrible queuing in that country. No, no, we all order via an app now, of course, so it's not like this at all. But, um, but yeah, yeah. Okay, but right, so folk um, psychology right. where we just, mm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I suppose what I want to say is if we, if we then, uh, so it seems like most people will accept that that's part and part of, uh, part and parcel rather of social life. Now, the, the one way to set up the key questions I want to ask about the mind is, but, but how do you really interpret that? Right? What, what's really happening when you say that someone wants a drink or believes they can get a drink in a bar or what have you? What are you really saying about them? Um, and what makes what you say true or false? How could you go wrong? And I want to say there's a, a particular kind of standard, very natural interpretation of what's happening, which is um, found an awful lot in the, in the literature, which is to say, well, what all that talk is really, what that folk psychology is really is, well, it's a bit like psychology um, uh, in the ordinary sense. It's, it's a kind of, in this case, a rudimentary theory about people's inner world. Um, so if I say, well, you know, why is he waving a hand, his hand around furiously because he wants a drink? I'm um, giving an explanation of that person's behaviour um, and that's a little bit like the way in which a scientist might say explain the properties of the table in terms of these hidden things called um, atoms and electrons. I'm explaining uh, on this view, I'm explaining the person's ex external behaviour, the waving of the hand, by reference to an inner world um, which contains things like a desire that's causing, um, along with lots of other mental states is causing this behavior so so there's a way of understanding this folk psychology this common sense view of mind which says it's a set of hypotheses about people's inner world their inner machinery and i, I in the book i call that view cartesianism although it's a i'm, I'm in a sense taking the label there and, and you know, um, perhaps being a little bit unfair to poor old Descartes, but, but everyone is about Descartes. Right. So it, it just just shows how influential you are as a philosopher if people keep using and abusing your name like this. So, um, but, but the general idea here is that you take our, our ordinary conception of mind to be um, claims about an inner world, about inner machinery, and sometimes that can go wrong, but sometimes perhaps it goes right. Um, and um, so now, and the thought, of course, is that if that's what folk psychology is, if it's a, a, a kind of rudimentary theory about our inner machinery, um, well, like any scientific theory, it could be wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, um, and so you have, as it were, kind of two camps on this, not evenly divided, but two camps. You could say, OK, if folk psychology is a theory of our inner machinery, is it true or is it false? Um, some people would say it's true and they, they find, you know, they want to find beliefs and desires and other mental states in um, uh, insiders in some sense. And we could perhaps come back to what that what that might mean. Um, well, uh, uh, there are others who, who say we don't have beliefs and desires and that that folk theory is false. Well, the, the model you gave <clears throat> again, so, again, sort of the pop science thing is, hey, the table, <clears throat> the one thing about the table one is you say, well, a uh, scientist comes and says there's an inner world of the table in which there are these molecules and then atoms. 
but I can show these to you. I can go down and show you these things pushing on each other. Um, and I feel like some of the neuroscientists, psychologists, the people in this field have turned to science, science and materialism to say, well, we can show you the same thing. Like that famous study everybody deploys about your brain decide your brain, quote unquote, decides to do something before you are aware that you're doing it. And then you make up a story about why you're doing it. And this is a famous materialist example of how everything that you're thinking or the decisions you think you're making are really determined by some other machinery running in your brain. Hmm. Yes. I mean, I think, um, of course, there's a, um, you know, everyone will ag agree, I suppose, I certainly would agree that the brain is enormously important right. for uh, enabling us to, to do what we do. Um, I guess where the shouting begins is sort of um, how you interpret what's what's happening uh, th there. Okay. Um, and in particular, in this case, do you think that um, you will find beliefs and desires in some sense right. in the, the brain. So do you think this, this folk understanding that we, that we have um, is going to prove to be by and large true, you know, uh, subject to some correction here and there, or do you think as, as some authors will say that it's, it's, it's just radically false. It's like the belief, you know, the belief in the mind is like the belief in witches or phlogiston and, all, and so on. And, and we're just, you know, really, we're going to have to eventually wean ourselves off it. We're going to have to start talking about, you know, oh, I, I can see that guy's waving his arm and his his neurons are firing in such and such activation pattern. I better better pour him a pint, right? You know, and we'll we'll get away from this way of thinking of beliefs and desires and so on. Yeah. Um. So so, and I think just to perhaps just to say where I stand in this, I think. The, the main idea that I want to, to push is to say um, that really that's just the wrong way of understanding the folk. or It's the wrong way of understanding what we're doing when we talk about the mind, I think. So, so it, what I want to say, I think, is that when we... It's true that we talk about the mind as if it were an inner world. We talk about people as if they have inner sentences that capture their beliefs, for instance, or as if they have inner pictures that, you know, that they're reasoning with and so on. Um, but that, um, but that, that is a useful fiction. In other words, that um, I think what we're doing there is we're speaking, as it were, metaphorically. We're, we're saying this person behaves as if they had these inner representations of the world, um, uh, but they don't really. So, it, so that's... Um, and what that whole inner world is, I think, is a metaphorical projection of the outer world of human languages, um, pictures, diagrams and so on, that give us this very rich, um, that this external world of human culture gives us a very rich resource to draw upon for making, um, for, for making sense of people. Um, and we draw upon it metaphorically uh, by constructing this idea of the mind as an inner world, um, that's that, that's the um, so I think that's the mistake that the Cartesian view that I mentioned earlier makes. It thinks the folk are serious. <laughs> it thinks they're it thinks they're committed to this idea that there is this inner world, and that if it turns out that inner world doesn't exist, well then um, the mind goes with it. And I think that's not um, that's not the right way to understand our, our concept of mind. 
So the obvious disappointment with this, with the with the idea you set up, which I think is very compelling, is that we want there to be a clear delineation between what is real and true. I mean, thousand again, it's been going on for a long time. As long as we we want to figure out which things are real and true, and which things are unreal and untrue. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> your th- this idea that these things are fiction, I think if we. I think some people find it unsettling because if we introduce the idea that some things that seem very true and that I take as true and real and that I have to are actually fictions, well, then sometimes people throw up their hands and say, well, then all things are fiction. If I can't have, if I can never know, quote unquote, whatever the truth is about this world around me because I'm operating through limited senses, I'm operating through these fictional models in my mind, uh, well, that's terrible. It sounds terrible. And then also, (laughs) how do I prove this? If everything is fiction, if I'm just creating models of a reality that's sort of not fully graspable, then wh- what hope? What hope do we have? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I see where your earlier question was coming from about um, sort of where do we go from here. That um, uh, can I can I try to convince you that in fact it's Cartesianism that should lead you to be despairing in that way, and that in fact. Uh, 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 the fictionist view that I mentioned should lead you to be a lot less despairing. Sure. I think, I mean, I think that um, if we return to, if we go back to what I said earlier about problems of knowledge and, and um, of epistemology and particular those that, um, uh, that arise from uh, the, um, the rise of the sciences in, in the early modern period um, that it, it's really, I think, um, it's it's the if you adopt a Cartesian view of the mind, if you start to think of it as an inner world of representations, then it's really that view that raises a lot of the sceptical uh, worries that you were just putting across so so nicely. Right? It's really once you start to convince yourself something that isn't obvious at all that your mind is an inner world and there's this gap between your inner world and the world out there that a lot of the really worrying skeptical challenges arise for you you can start to worry is there really a world out there am i just trapped in here on my own are there other people or are they all just robots so i i'd rather think it goes the other way around that it's really a lot of the um, deep sceptical challenges that plague much of modern philosophy, um, and, and shouldn't take this this too far. There are sceptical, there are worries about knowledge that that aren't, aren't trace. It can't be traced back to the, to Cartesianism, but I, but I do think that as it were, once you accept Cartesianism, you raise all of these problems, like the problem of the external world, the problem of other minds, and so on, that really are not problems. So I, I, I think, you know, it, it, the, the, the fictionist view is to say this, look, um, there are other people, and they behave in certain ways. 
Um, we make sense of their behaviour by talking as if they had these inner representations in a sentences. You know, I can make sense of why someone's reaching for the kettle to make a cup of tea by saying, well, it's as, you know, um, they've got a, they want a cup of tea. Well, it's as if they've got a, a little sentence saying, make a cup of tea, that's <laughs> guiding them. You know, uh, it's almost as if they had a, a little crib sheet written down that they could look at and say, make a cup of tea, right? Um, uh, but but there aren't these inner, inner sentences really, as it were. People's minds are much on this view, in the fictionist view. People's minds are much more um, sort of uh, mundanely open to us than they are in the Cartesian view. There's no need to make these shaky inferences to an inner world. Um, you can very often see in someone's the pattern of someone's behaviour what their beliefs are, what their desires. But are as as so I say I. I see your establishment of this Cartesian idea that if if we trap ourselves in a in a sort of we figure out oh I am a constant unchanging or I am a knowable I and everything else is an unknowable out there including the other eyes that creates the problem are you just talking about sort of holding these things holding self and I a little less tight to be able to establish, well, the only thing I know for sure, I think, therefore, I am. I know I'm a self because I'm thinking, and now I can't know anything. I can't, I can't see into anyone else's brain cavity. So then, boom, I'm left with the problem. Um, so, so I, um, let me, let me try and see if I, I uh, can um, sort of put it more clearly. I, I, I think it's a mistake to think. So I think... You know the um, the 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 I think therefore therefore I am idea is to as it were to take our own thoughts as being what's most immediately knowable to us, um, and and of course for, for for Descartes that's a a kind of starting point then to build via the thought of God uh, by the idea of God to to the external world. Um, now I suppose what we want to say is I. So I'm, uh, on the one hand, it might seem more uh, a more worrying view because I'm not convinced that we have that sort of privileged access, as it's often put, to our own thoughts. I think sometimes other people are a better judge of our beliefs and desires than we are. And they're, they're a better judge because sometimes they're a better judge of our behavior. <laughs> we can kid ourselves. And you mentioned that therapy thing. Again, you say things that you think are true and then reflected back to you. Someone tells you, well, you've said this and you've said it again and again and you clearly think it, but there may be something else going on. And then you feel some, aha, oh, my God, somebody, how come I couldn't think that about my thoughts or my feelings? Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think there's a... Um, Many cases. I mean, so an example I give at the book. You, you, you know, you you say to yourself, "Well, I think it's really important to look after the environment," uh, and then you wander around chucking, you know, your crisp packets and chocolate bar wrappers <laughs> and so on all over the floor. And uh, uh, now, do you really think it's important to look after the environment? However many times you say that to yourself, however many times you say it, as it were, silently to yourself. Um, well, no, I, I don't think you do have that believe um i think you know i or pick up design i can say to myself you know i um i i really have a burning desire to be a professional football player um although that that ship has sailed for me <laughs> at the age of, <laughs> i think um but you know I, I can say that to myself if i never get up and practice you know my free kicks if i never make any effort to get fit or whatever do i do i really have that desire i'm not sure 
Um, so, I, I mean, so just in, even in quite mundane cases, right, um, outside of a, of, a, of a therapy room, we can, um, we can uh, kid ourselves, you know, and, and what I mean by that is uh, we can have certain patterns of uh, behavior or even certain feelings, but um, we can make mistakes about what um, those patterns of behavior and feelings mean for our beliefs, our desires, um, and lots of other um, uh, mental states. Um, so I think that, um, so that's not to say that I don't think that we have it, you know, it's not to say that I don't think that there aren't some aspects of mind where we do have a kind of privileged access. So, you know, if you tread on my toe, um, you know, I, I, I feel something that you don't, um, you know, uh, if you tread on it really hard, then I probably won't be able to stop myself making you aware of it um, by yelping or whatever. Um, if you only do it slightly and I want to be polite, I might manage to control uh, myself enough that you don't become aware of that. But I am. Um, so in other words, you know, sensations, of course, are an example where we 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 do have a different um, we can say access, although that's slightly misleading, but we do feel them in a way that someone else doesn't. Um, but I think it's, we can move too quickly from that feature of something like a pain in my toe to thinking that, well, because we have that kind of um, immediate felt access to something like a pain in our toe, well, then the mind as a whole is something like that. The mind as a whole is something to which we have a kind of, um, special access um, and other people don't and then we begin to worry about whether we could ever access other people's minds and, and so on so um, and and I would want to stop that slide right there, there are there are certain things like a, a pain or what have you that um, have that quality but there are lots of other things that come under our concept of mind um, all the way from um, beliefs and desires to emotions to character traits and so on um, where the story is a lot more complicated what does the idea of mental fictionalism do that the idea of I am a solitary consciousness in one meat bag and cannot properly know reality or other people? What does thinking about these things as fictions? One, I, I play devil's advocate and said, oh, it feels bad to say, well, I'm uncertain about things or I need to hold this a little less lightly. Some people really want to be sure that they're exploring what's absolute truth and that can be difficult to know. How does mental mm -hmm. fictionalism open up new possibilities for interaction or thinking about self? Um, so, so can I, I just, just one point that, that I really mentioned again there that I realized I perhaps, um, perhaps ought to, to just say something more about, and then I'll, then I'll try to come to that question. I mean, one thing is, I realize, of course, that this term fiction and fictionalism is, is quite loaded yeah. and it can have <laughs> the, now in a way I want to just sort of, I plead not guilty to some of that. It, it is to some extent a term of art, um, and um, it, it's for that reason something that's quite hard to avoid. Um, sometimes I have the feeling that if if you were to phrase a lot of what I'm trying to say here in slightly different terms, so if I was to say, as the title of the book says, that mind's meta, is mind as metaphor. Mm -hmm. So if I talk in terms of metaphor, sometimes that seems rather have not to have quite the same worrying overtones as fiction. So I just wanted to, to, to 
you know, acknowledge that this term fiction, you know, I, I mean, I've talked about scientific models as being akin to works of fiction. And, and there in particular, you have to be careful, right? Because um, it can seem as if you're inviting um, a wholesale kind of skepticism. Right, you're not just suggesting we're all just, knowledge. It, the, it clearly carries the weight that well, we're all just making up stories and these stories don't have any reality. Yeah. And we, we all have competing stories and none of them have any competing, you can't, compare or contrast them in any way because they're all just made up yeah yeah and and that's that's i think that's very much not the case right so so um for instance a lot of what i would want to say or that, that people more generally have said about fictions in scientific modeling for instance um would come as no surprise to a practicing scientist at all right it comes as no surprise to people who are um, engaged in the sciences, that they have to make all sorts of simplifying assumptions when they um, uh, want to understand a complex system, that they have to treat it as if it were simpler or more idealized or what have you. So to some extent there, the term fiction um, uh, can seem unnecessary. And and in my own work, the, the only reason or the main reason for drawing on this, for using the term fiction at all, is really because I think that in scientific modeling there's a a key element of imagination that's akin to the writing fiction okay so in other words i think very often it's perhaps even philosophers who are guilty of this as much as anyone else that you can think that science is is kind of straightforwardly in the business of describing the world as it is whereas very often um there's a, a key imaginative move where you realize, as I, as I mentioned earlier, the world as it is, is far too complicated and messy for you to just, you could, if you wanted, try to write down a big long laundry <laughs> list of all the facts about the, the system. You know, an example I've used before, um, you may remember, as I do, school um, classes where you would um, try to predict what happens when you bounce a lump of plasticine up and down on a spring and, you know, Typically, when I remember being asked to do that, um, the spring was all bent out of shape because, you know, this had been used in classes for 10 years or what have you, and the plasticine's all uh, lumpy and everything. And you think, well, how on earth do I go about, you know, the, maybe the, you're doing the experiment in front of the window and the wind's blowing in and making the, the stand that you've hung this spring on wobble about, you know. But, of course, what the teacher will say is, well, though, treat the plasticine as if it were a point mass and treat the spring as if it had no mass and as if it obeyed Hooke's law and so on. So it's part and parcel of the sciences that we have to um, uh, use imagination um, in in that way to, to imagine the world as being different to the way that it is. And... And what I want to say is that's not recognizing that it is not in itself a skeptical move. As I say, I don't think that would come as any surprise to the, the scientists. Right. It's not that, you know, they're saying, oh, well, this surface really um, is frictionless. And I'm coming along and saying, ah, no, 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 you're wrong about that. They're perfectly well aware <laughs> that they're operating with a, a claim that, in fact, is false, but just useful for some purposes. And so so that's one thought that... that very often, it's it's not that I'm asking um, people here to to revise their opinion. It's the key um, point here is just to to notice that in many domains of um, of inquiry, we're aware, as it were, of what the truth is. 
but we know we have to adopt some other claims that are not true for some purposes, like for simplification and prediction and, and so on. Um, and and the, the other point to add to that, of course, is that it's not just that anything goes. You know, um, some simplifications and idealizations are worse than others. Um, you know, if I was to um, model that lump of plasticine on the spring as a, um, an object in, in free fall, I'd give much worse predictions than if I was to model it as a simple harmonic oscillator, for instance. Um, so, and again, as I say, I think people doing these things in the sciences are, are, are perfectly well aware of what they're doing. I think it's it's often when we approach those practices with a, a, um, a slightly too simplified idea about knowledge that it's, it's truth or nothing, something like that. You know, it's either you've got to get the truth or... Um, or anything goes. And actually, the, the reality is, is quite a bit more complicated. Um, <clears throat> the, I, I, you've been very uh, gracious with your time, and I have, a, I have a closing question, and you can duck it or engage angrily with it, which you probably won't. Uh, you t- we talked at the very beginning, we talked a little bit about desire. So the, the person's in the pub, they're waving their hand. We think that mm-hmm. means that they want something. Um, and science oftentimes is invest it's investigating things but behind what they're investigating or why they're investigating it or what effects they hope would come from investigating this those all wade into this murky world where philosophy sort of gets closer to religion and gets close to <clears throat> all the all the other f- science and philosophy get closer to all the other fields which is what the hell are we doing this for is anything in your explorations of consciousness and mind get to the question, there's these questions that some philosophers deal with and some don't, what ought we to be doing, these ethical questions? Because this this seems very couched in, and I like it. It's sort of, it's measured in, well, what is the behavior? How do we practice this? How do we know this? The oughts and the shoulds that come out of ethics, how does that fit into this, the stuff you do? Mm. That's... It's an interesting question. I think, I suppose, in the way that you you asked it, you uh, saw that you know you could anticipate that um, uh, that, that I I might um, stall for time like I am doing. Um, uh, and and but that's not uh, so. I think that the view of the mind that I've been talking about yeah. is not simply, as it were, a theoretical position on people um it is for instance a fairly individualist position um it it sets up a barrier between us and work and and the rest of the world and i i don't think and there are there are other authors who've, who've written about this i don't think that is as it were neutral with respect to to ethical or political questions so you know our view of ourselves a relationship to other people and to the world is not simply a theoretical matter right. for um, for uh, philosophers, for scientists, what have you. It, it also has um, implications for how we think about ethics and how we think about political philosophy. Th- those are not my fields, um, but in the project that I want to engage in um, next, following on from this book, they're going to come, I think, much more to the fore. Wait, so you just all you're going to do is leave leave me with a cliffhanger? 
<laughs> this is philosophy, you know. That's uh, that's that that. Unfortunately, that's how it is. You know, no answers. Um. <laughs> I, okay, I am excited about it. And I lied because you answered that one so smartly. I do have one closing thing. I've done a lot of exploration okay. of... Um, Gosh, I should answer this one less smartly. If that's <laughs> right. Just uh, <laughs> that's the with, a, with, a, t- with yeah. a total lack of thought and nuance and, uh, and without reasonable arguments. Um, this issue with mind... Um, so this is probably this is probably more of a personal question because I've always been interested in ethics and philosophy and religion <clears throat> and recently mm. started to explore kind of what's called nihilism in some branches of Buddhism. But really, if you get into it, it's not really nihilism at all. But it is a sort of the problems all result from you thinking you have a fixed mind and that there is a stretch out into the present and the future that you have a handle on. And really, there's a way in which to sit in the moment. Is it? How have you looked when you've gone looking at either philosophers or religions or ideas that, well, the problem is a fixation on a set ego and that if you let that go, there's some refuge, there's some bottom point at which you can settle into in the present. Does any of that help or do you, do, how, how have you, have you wrestled with that at all and how does it fit in and what do you think about that stuff? I know that's a gigantic. Yeah. So, so I, um, I, I mean, I certainly wouldn't count myself as a, as a, an expert at all on lots of the, the, the ideas that you, you mentioned. But I think um, but perhaps one way I would put it is in the, the debates in which I'm engaged yeah. in. One of the things that I'm trying to resist is what you might call a reification of mind. And perhaps that speaks to some of what you, you just said. So the, 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 the move that takes the mind to be an inner world um, is as it were making mind into an object, a mechanism. In fact, it's 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 taking um, a, a a vision of the world um, that became extremely um, influential, of course, in the scientific revolution, and um, it it the mind is is as it were reified to something that is that is an object and that is. In it. Now, of course, that that can change, um, uh, but nevertheless, it seems as if it's it's um, it's making. I think one way to put it would be it's making something which is um, a whole messy, complex pattern of behaviour which is often conflicted, um, and um, for a certain purpose, reifying that in the moment to say, you know, we may have a very conflicted pattern of someone's behavior, but we, um, we make sense of it by saying they have this belief. And, and that in that is a, um, to go back to the, the, the case of scientific models is a kind of simplification of a blooming buzzing confusion that is other people. Um, and we can't really, at least, in the position we're in at the, the moment, I think, in, in our own culture, we probably can't do without that. Um, it's very hard to see how you could engage in social life without doing something like that. Um, n- nevertheless, I think we need to be aware of what it is that we're doing. We do that. And I, and perhaps a little less obviously than in the case of scientific models, but, but still, I think that we can bring ourselves to be aware of what we're doing when we do that through philosophical inquiry. And, and that's, that's part of what I'm, I'm interested in doing. 